Ready? Yep. Check my levels. That's pretty loud. One, two, three, four. Tell me what you're looking for. I'll, t- I'll turn it down for you. All right, hit me. I'm David Torsibio. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. I'm going to say Daniel Forkner again. He said it kind of weird. Daniel Forkner. I'm Daniel Forkner. I'm Daniel Forkner. I'm Daniel Forkner. I'm D. Faulkner. I've actually never done it that with that inflection before. Forkner? I'm Daniel Forkner. It's always like, I'm Daniel Forkner. You know? Yeah. So today's topic, Daniel, is something we've been talking about for a while. Um, it's sort of been on the back burner, though, like a low-key kind of thing that's just been sitting there lightly toasting. Uh, we've got some books. We've had some articles. Uh, we have this really great book that uh, we both have on this topic. It's called The Arsenal of Exclusion and Inclusion that we'll be referencing a lot throughout this show. If you can ever find a copy of that, and I think it's sold out everywhere for ages, you should pick it up. But the reason I think that we're doing this now is uh, I was recently walking around my neighborhood. I had picked up something to eat, and you know, it's coronavirus times up here, right? There's nowhere to go. You're not allowed to eat inside in New York. You have to go outside. But this place didn't have any outdoor seating. So I was wandering around looking for a place to eat, you know, to sit down and actually like chat out on this stuff. And uh, there was nothing. There's no benches. Uh, there's no like places to sit. It was a hot day. Uh, there was no shade to find. You know, you wander down to the park, but then like all the benches there are missing. People are all over the place. So it's, it's too packed. You can't get in there. Right. So eventually I just plopped down on the street and leaned up against something and hoped nobody would come out and I, I ate my lunch. But it got me wondering and really thinking about this topic again, which is Basically, how do we end up making the places that we live, in this case, my neighborhood, my city, but not just here. I've seen this in suburbs. I've seen this in rural areas all over the place. How do we make the places that we live so actually horrible for the people who live there? How or why? Or both? Both, as always, Daniel. The, the how and the why cannot be separated, and certainly that's the case in this story. So uh, this is an episode. A sort of rambling collection of examples and rants where we discuss the many ways that the cities and other living spaces of modern society are built to be actively hostile, in many cases, to the people that live in these areas. And of course, the reasons why this is the case. Yeah, I guess uh, it could be pretty horrible to live in in certain cities or, or like certain layers of cities. I guess it kind of depends on who you are, right? Like it depends on how much money you make. Daniel, you you nailed it already. We don't we can just wrap up the episode right now. Who needs the examples? Oh, jackpot. I'm a winner. Yes, you are a winner, Daniel. You are exactly right. It's not just where you are, it's who you are. And so for many people, uh, these areas are not a problem because you never are out on the street. But for many of us, that's not an option. You are on the street all the time. And so this is sort of an exploration of that tale of two cities where a single place can be built for one group of people, inclusion, and built to actively hurt others, that exclusion. And 
we see this all over the place. We see this in laws. We see this in architecture. We see this in the physical space that surrounds us. And uh, once your eyes have been opened to looking for these things in your environment, I think you'll be shocked at just how exclusionary the uh, areas that we spend our life in are. Uh, not just to those that it's designed to exclude, but to all of us as collateral damage. Collateral damage. Speaking of damage, this idea just came to me. Uh, I didn't even prepare for this. <laughs> no research went into this. But when I was a kid, I used to skateboard. I liked to skateboard. Yeah. And it always struck me how hostile the built environment is, whether you're in the suburbs or the cities, to skateboarders. You know, one thing that skateboarders love to do is they call it grinding. I also love love that. It's not what you do on the dance floor. It's when you uh, when you it's when you slide down a rail like um, on the side of stairs. You know? Oh yeah, that's what I meant too. Right, uh, or you slide along like a concrete. Uh, sidewalk barrier what is the thing i don't that you step off of the sidewalk the uh a curb yeah the curb so you can you can grind on a curb <laughs> and to do that you have to get some special wax that you can buy at a skate shop where you like wax the curb and it makes it a little bit more slippery for your grinding <laughs> there's a lot of technical terms you've thrown around here daniel very are, are you are you trying to suggest that maybe uh skateboarders encountered some of this uh, that we're talking about today? Yes. Uh, thank you for putting me back on track, back on the rail. So one example being uh, at like shopping centers where there are rails for stairs, it's not uncommon to see nuts and bolts welded to the rail because if you try to grind on those rails, you're going to crash and fall as a skateboarder. And anytime you see shopping centers and suburban spaces, a lot of times you'll see no loitering, no skateboarding. Mm -hmm. Uh, no skating, that type of thing. We'll talk about loitering in a second, but keep going. And it did make me feel as a child, as a teenager, just trying to have a little bit fun. Like society saw me as some kind of vagrant or criminal or just like a devalued member of society just because I like to go fast on four wheels. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, well, I mean, they absolutely did see you that way, Daniel. So you were feeling exactly how these groups of people, these business owners, these these politicians, uh, these busybodies around the neighborhood wanted you to feel like a criminal. And this is one of the, the most visible ways you'll see the topics that we talk about today. So next time you're out anywhere, and, and I mean anywhere, strip mall, uh, the suburbs, the city, uh, you can start seeing these spikes or these nuts and bolts all over the place. So, so what Daniel's talking about specifically in order to hurt skateboarders, you can find on railings all over the place. Uh, but not just is this type of architecture targeted at skateboarders, but it's also targeted at people who might possibly sit down in one of these areas on a curb or something, or people who might try and use this for sleeping because they're otherwise unhoused. These take many different forms. So most prominently, we've seen spikes, literal spikes installed all over the place uh, where, and I, I've seen these in front of people's private houses. I've seen them in front of public institutions and everything in between where, uh, say there's a curb that's, that's maybe, you know, two, three, feet high above the uh, the sidewalk. And behind it, there's flowers or bushes or something. And it's the perfect place to sit and maybe enjoy your lunch because you're wandering around trying to look for a seat to eat lunch because apparently there's no more binges anywhere anymore. And I'll get to that. But lo and behold, some property owner decided that they didn't want people skateboarding on this or, or sitting on this or sleeping on this. So they've covered this beautiful area with tiny little spikes all over it. 
just completely ruining the entire environment in order to prevent you from putting your butt where you want to put it. Ridiculous. These are all over the place. They, they, they vary from like very small needle-like types, um, which also do double duty preventing birds from roosting because a lot of this architecture isn't just focused on keeping humans out, but also many of our animal friends as well. But they range from those tiny little things to, uh, to like thumb size spikes to I've seen some installed um, up in the Pacific Northwest specifically where they have a large unhoused population of people sleeping on the streets. You find under overpasses or other places that are otherwise protected from the elements, cities and municipalities have installed enormous spikes, many cases sometimes like a foot tall, like a foot by foot pyramid just on a continuous plateau under these areas to prevent anybody from being able to sit down or to lay down or build a tent or otherwise construct any sort of shelter or even find a place just to sleep out of the rain for the night because they would rather spend a lot of money building architecture that makes you feel like you're in a literal prison than give space for somebody to spend the night to sleep in. And there's a number of reasons why this is the case, and we'll go into them as we explore these themes throughout this episode, but this is a really important concept, which is that a lot of people are willing to sacrifice something. In this case, the actual aesthetic beauty and the, the mental, like emotional state that you feel when you're in an area in order to exclude other people that they don't want to think about, encounter, or even really honestly acknowledge they exist, except as a nuisance. And these exist all over the place. Once you start looking for them, you're going to see them everywhere. It's really incredible how much they pop up. But they, they also have many uh, more subtle forms, Daniel. I'm sure you've seen, you know, in the past... Subtlety. Yes, subtleties. In the past, it feels like benches were a bench. You know, like it's a long thing. It's like five, six feet long. There's two armrests and there's a backrest, right? Yeah. That's what a bench is. I love a good bench. Me too. You can fit a couple friends on there. You can eat your food from the restaurant. You can lie down if you're having a particularly rough day and you just need a moment to yourself. They're great. But somewhere along the line in the past few decades, somebody realized, hey, this bench is doing double duty as a bed. Some poor unhoused person is forced to sleep on this bench because they have nowhere else to go. Oh, no, that's hurting our property values. That's introducing crime. Think of the children. Oh, no. What if we installed instead an armrest in the middle of the bench? So practically, it's still a bench, but, you know, it. it divides your friend group in half and it makes you think about cutting the world in half and being separated from everyone else. But you know what? It doesn't matter because what we're doing is we're turning that, that bench into two chairs that are next to each other and nobody can lay down across two chairs. So problem solved. It's no longer a bed. Nobody can sit here. Of course, you know, ignoring the fact that people still can very easily sleep sitting up. Um, it's just less comfortable. So they, they actually haven't fixed anything, but they have made it more miserable for everybody involved. So good job for that. These benches exist everywhere, and they don't exist just in this simple armrest in the middle style. You'll see specifically designed waves uh, where it looks like a bench, but it's got like curves and waves. And we'll put photos of these on the website, ashesashes.org, if you want to see visual examples of some of the things we're talking about today. But, but these are designed very specifically to be uncomfortable, to prevent people from lying down without sliding off. And not only just lying down, but also to make sure that people who are sitting down there to take a load off their feet, maybe for a moment, don't stay too long because the bench is purposefully designed to be uncomfortable. And many businesses have taken this idea a step further, and now they're actually installing toilets that slope in a similar way, Daniel, in order to make sure people aren't spending too much time in the can not being productive. But uh -oh. uh, we, we have these types of benches. We have uh, benches with no backs, but still armrests. 
all sorts of clever designs um, in the New York City subway and substations instead of benches, all of which have armrests. They've installed these things, which it looks like a, sort of a like a swing kind of, you know, like imagine a, a child's playground swing, Daniel, like the the ones that are stiff plastic boards. Imagine that as your seat and imagine it's attached to this axle and it spins continuously unless you're sort of half sitting, half leaning against it. So it's completely impossible for anybody to sleep on it, even standing up. Or What is the point at this point? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know, because nobody who's tired can use that. Yeah, well, like, what is the point of constructing the chair in the first place if you're just going to be like, screw anybody that wants to relax in this, you know, this area? My guess, Daniel, said it meets some sort of legal definition of a chair and some mandate that Metro Transit Authority has in order to construct X amount of chairs in each station, but does so in a way that it's not actually useful for anybody in order to push off the problem of unhoused people onto somebody else. And that's that's a running theme that we'll talk about here. So uh, I, I feel like we're already getting out of the control with these examples, but this is sort of the nature of how this episode is going to be built, where we fall down this hole where you realize these things you've been looking at for years are actually part of this insidious structure in order to exclude people from the environments that you normally find yourself in. Um, I just want to point out, I'm going to try to find a way to connect these topics uh, to climate change at some point, and then how they're really ultimately bad for everybody, these uh, exclusionary things. But David, look, you're talking subtleties, you're talking about you know flying, spinning children's chairs and benches with uh, armrests and stuff. Yeah, my description was not so good. I'll put a picture of those up too. This is very subtle. It's kind of, I'm not really picking it up. You know, so let me just give you one better. The Strand Bookstore in New York City, I've been there many times. They have a great selection of books. Well, in 2013, they decided that they didn't really like the fact that homeless people took shelter at night underneath their awning and slept underneath the awning to get out of the cold, like rain and, and stuff like that. Outside of the store. So they're outside of the store. They're still sleeping on a sidewalk. It's just yeah. the fact is right there. Strand has this very famous red uh, what's it? Awning. Red awning. Thank you. That's that's. Yeah, I didn't know the word for curb, but you don't know the word for awning, even yeah. after I said it. I know. I, I blanked out. So, but it goes all the way around the, the building and uh, it provides nice shelter in the rain. I've stood underneath it in the rain try, waiting for uh, to cross the street. So like but whatever. This bookstore decided we don't like these homeless people. So they hooked up water hoses to the awnings and then just at night and in the morning they just started blasting homeless people with freezing water at, like in November, soaking everything they had. And um this was first reported in the New York Post and as they point out on uh, in the article, uh the Strand bookstore calls itself a neighborhood institution and on its website, quote as we change and grow with the times, we will never lose sight of our roots. We are a community bookstore first and foremost. And I just, I just pulled up uh, the Strands website right now. This is August 24th. And let me just read you some of the things on its front banner. Disability pride. <laughs> Disability pride is one of the very first things they're advertising. Um, Let's see. They got black studies, oh, a lot of black studies here. One of their best-selling books is by Bell Hooks. So I, I think the owner of the Strand, the current owner too, is married to a Democratic senator or representative from Oregon as well. So somebody who like 
allegedly devotes their lives to serving the public. Yeah, and I think obviously it's pretty easy to pick on the strand. I mean, all businesses are guilty of these types of things, which we'll talk about. But I I do think it highlights the irony here in a lot of these exclusionary tactics where who is who is it that we're really trying to serve here? Who are who is who are our cities for? When we say this is a community bookshop, who is the community? Is it the people who live there or is it the rich bougie tourists who think they're open-minded who come from out of state or Daniel. you know took the the subway? <laughs> Did I say I love their book selection? It is a, it is a fine selection. But yeah, they're purporting themselves to be like I guess like this liberal leaning like oh we have feminist books and let's do black studies and disability pride. Meanwhile, they go out there with hoses and spray down the homeless people. Like, that's, that's irony, right? Well, so, I mean, you, you brought this up as an example of a particularly egregious method of controlling these public spaces, but it's only egregious because they did it so flagrantly. But this is another one of those really subtle things that exist all over the place that you look at it, you're like, oh yeah, they put out sprinklers in order to water the, uh, you know, the landscape, the grass, the topiaries, whatever. But the timing of when these sprinklers run and how they run is often done in a very specific way in order to achieve the same goal that you're pointing out here, Daniel, where a lot of parks, a lot of areas, especially around like City Hall, where they don't want protesters creating encampments and stuff, these sprinklers are set to run mostly overnight, which is fine. It's a more responsible time to water because you know, less of it evaporates and it's lost, but they don't run consistently. They pop up, run for a couple minutes, turn off, maybe another 15 minutes or an hour later, they'll pop up, run for a couple minutes, do that again. And it becomes very clearly when you actually watch this system in practice, that it's not about watering. There are more efficient ways to water all this stuff. There are also much less need for water oftentimes. But when you're using this as a tool in order to drive people away from these public spaces, suddenly the odd behavior makes sense. And this happens all over the place. And it's not just limited to, to public institutions. It's not just limited to uh, private institutions, Daniel. But like, there's a particularly famous case where they were doing this at the doorway to the St. Mary's Cathedral in San Francisco, uh, specifically to drive away the homeless that would sleep there. Like, this is an actual like Catholic cathedral. And they were spraying people automatically overnight in order to keep them from sleeping there. And it, it became such a, a controversy that, that Pope Francis stepped in and, and gave some people towards the Vatican in order to try and make up for it. But this is a sort of ubiquitous technique for, for making sure that the world that we've created is as hostile to unwanted people as possible. And something that we don't normally think of or encounter, but is very obviously there right in front of our eyes when you actually stop for a second to think about it. You mentioned the word doorway. so. One thing that I thought about is the doorway to bars and clubs. And um, I've been excluded from a couple of those. <laughs> well, that's, that's not systemic, though. That, there's, <laughs> there's reason for that. The, there's reason for that. Um, so I went to University of Georgia, which uh, is a university in the United States, and it's known for having so the, the town that it sits in, Athens, Georgia, has... The I think at the time, maybe still, the most bars uh, per capita or like per square foot or something is like the, the highest density of bars in like anywhere in the world. Outside of maybe Dublin. Maybe. But it's, it's just an insane party school and um, freshmen who are like 
clearly underage, get into bars all the time. And everyone kind of knew. So there's this dress code that a lot of bars had, no white t-shirt dress codes. And it was pretty widely known that this was just like an anti-black people uh, thing. And then I had a I knew people who were not black who wore white t-shirts into bars all the time and they got in. And it kind of goes back to like discussions you've brought up in the past, David, about how laws that are created to uh, quote unquote like classify crime is not really about some like moral standard of what's right and wrong, but more creating the framework by which police can then justify selectively policing certain people, right? Because the white t-shirt policy was only enforced when the person manning the door recognized a black person or, or like just wanted to use it for whatever purpose. There's actually a funny video uh, on this that I want to play a clip from. There, it's a sketch comedy group called RDC World One. You can find them on YouTube. And uh, they did a funny sketch on this. So I'm just going to play it for you. Okay, Dave? Let's do it. So the premise is like it's a group of black guys trying to get into a, a club. And so one, one of them is acting as a bouncer. That's what I'm saying, talking about Jordans and, and jackets and uh, I brought some extra dress shoes and everything. That's what I'm saying. You say he doing all that, he's giving me the runaround for no reason. And, ain't you that black? That don't even make sense how you write. That don't make no sense. That's what I'm saying. Give me runaround, all that extra shit for no reason. Just tell me I'm black from the jump. That's what I'm saying. I'm so that's just a little comedy sketch for you, but based 100% on real life. Well, so a lot of these things that we're talking about here are, in fact, based in some sort of racism where. We had all these explicitly racist laws in the past, and I'm going to talk about some of them that have been eliminated or at least prevented from being allowed to um, be enforced uh, through things like the Civil Rights Act, the uh, Equal Housing Rights, etc. But that doesn't mean that people haven't found clever ways of creating laws as proxies. You might remember, Daniel, in the 2010s, 2008, uh, right around there, sagging pants became like a really big trend a lot of people are doing it like the lower the better and you have basically your pants like right above your knees and then your boxers above that and this was used as a tool by a lot of municipalities in florida and georgia and new york to create laws that were basically called saggy pants bans where if you were walking around with your pants sagging below a certain i don't know i don't know that they have like a ruler what if this was like a middle school dress code where like teachers come in and like Make sure that your uh, make sure that the strap on your tank top is at least two fingers wide or whatever. But like on a scale where police with guns are doing this to people, I, I don't exactly know the enforcement technique. But it was very much they're like, oh, these are family friendly people. You know, you can see they're boxers. That's a horrifying thing. But you know, reminder that a lot of these areas that pass these laws, you 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 would have nudity that's legal. So like in New York, you can be topless but you couldn't sag your pants. Oh, wow. Uh, most of these laws were eventually found unconstitutional um, and they've been struck. So some cities were able to make, you know, tens of thousands of dollars through fines and other enforcement, destroying people's lives in the process um, until this was ultimately found unconstitutional. But it doesn't take a genius 
to look at this law and be like, oh yeah, that's a racist law. This is designed explicitly to punish one group of people who we identified as sagging pants people, because that's just what they happen to be doing right now. But those sagging pants people are black people. And we're passing this law explicitly to find and kick out black people from our communities. And whether it's from clubs, like your bouncer example, Daniel, which absolutely does happen in real life, um, or whether it's from entire areas through a variety of the tools and techniques that we're covering throughout this episode, not just things targeted at the unhoused, but also people looking to come into a community, purchase land, purchase property, invest physical dollars in a community if they are of a certain group that is deemed unwanted, oftentimes because solely of their race. There are a multitude of tools, techniques, and legal instruments that have been created, as well as the behaviors of individuals in order to pursue these types of things that prevent people from basically living their lives as free people. I, I, wa- I want to, one second, Daniel, j- just jump back real far um, for one, one moment, just because I was reading through some of this stuff. And sort of trying to get into the mindset of like, okay, I'm the like evil racist politician. I don't think I'm racist. You know, I think I'm doing this because I want to improve my community. I want to improve property values. I want to like keep a family friendly imagery. These are all like coded words that I've, I'm using in my, my vocabulary. Right. Um, and, and to myself, because I genuinely don't think I'm a racist evil person, but you know, I'm okay with black people. It's just certain black. It's just those. You, you probably have a friend or two, right? Yeah, I definitely have a friend, a black friend. You know, and I mean, you couldn't name them by name, and like you, we couldn't call them up, but like no, but you like, have some vague. I've, I've met black people before, and like the black people that I know, they say that they the problem with some black culture is is you know that culture. So like it's a there's nothing about black people. It's about you know that that gangster culture, or whatever. Right. So like this is what people tell themselves in order to convince themselves that they're not racist. But all they're doing in actuality is building on a long, proud, racist American tradition of excluding unwanted people from their communities. And this is my favorite example of this. Did you know, Daniel, that uh, there used to be these things in the United States and, and fairly recently, you know, within 100 years from now, called um, sundown towns? Have you heard these, this term before? Sundown. That means everyone gets margaritas at sundown. Uh, that would be awesome. But no, what a sundown town was, it's a town where you would know that if you were a minority, and this is not just for black people, but this is also times Jews, Mexicans, uh, especially Native Americans, people you want out of your town, they would know basically that if I'm in this town and the sun sets, then I'm going to get fucked up. I'm going to be lynched, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be kicked out of town, and I'm going to pay with my own physical well-being. This was very common. It was all over the place, right? It's not, it's not surprising. You know, this is 1800s, turn of the century, 1920s. So we're, we're not expecting Americans to be not racist. They were racist, whatever. Um, not that much has changed, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, well, some towns went so far, Daniel, that they actually installed whistles, like steam whistles all over the town, sirens that would go off, like a tornado warning. At like 6 p.m. And they would, they would blast these sirens across the town to let all the minorities know it's time to fucking leave. And if they didn't leave, they would get the shit beat out of them. Do, do you think that maybe there's not a difference, but is the buzzer like a warning? Yeah. no. The, the, is it like a warning like, we care about you, watch out? Or is it more like... No, it's like, watch this out. is your last, last warning. 
time to leave, you know? And, and this is not just something that existed in the South. Uh, this was in also places like Washington, the state, Oregon, California, Indiana, Ohio, New York, Illinois. All these places had these towns. And what's really incredible, Daniel, is that I was saying that, you know, this mostly went out of fashion a while ago. But in some places, in Nevada specifically, there were Native American ones that were going off as late as 1999. 1999, mm -hmm. sundown whistles were going off? These sirens, yeah. And, and there are actually still, in some cities, sundown ordinance is still in the books. They're just not enforced um, because they don't have the legal standing to. And also, you know, we hope that, that people have learned their lesson. But this is the kind of explicit racism that existed in the history of this country for a very long time. And, you know, as we, quote unquote, progressed, as we got better about our interactions with others, for many, they said this was wrong. What we did, you know, we're sorry for that. We're moving on. But for many, many others, and a lot of them in places of power, whether that is business or politics, they said, okay, you know, we can't be explicit about what we're doing. We can't have a literal warning sign going off that says, hey, black people, leave this town at 6 p.m. That's, that's a step too far. But what we can do is create all sorts of legal structures in order to prevent people from coming to this town in the first place, but also punishing them arbitrarily when they do. Things like that sagging pants law but also many others, which we'll keep exploring as we go through these examples. Well, David, if we're talking about whistles, like things that make noise, and then we're also talking about 1999, um, we could talk about buzzers and the year 2000. Well, specifically the year 1986, which is the year that Richard Cohen, columnist of the Washington Post, wrote about this, this buzzer phenomenon where, you know, if I can back up a little bit, a lot of store owners in cities in middle to late 20th century, and probably still to this day, as I'll talk about when I get to uh, why I mentioned the year 2000, a lot of these store owners have doorbells uh, at the front of their store, little buzzers. And if you want to go into the store to do your shopping, you have to ring the doorbell. And you probably know where this is going. Store owners would not admit young black men or even black women into their stores. They would just not unlock the door. And this, this practice was so rampant, in fact, that Richard Cohen wrote this uh, op-ed in the Washington Post in 1986, basically uh, defending uh, store owners. And I just want to uh, read a quote uh, or a couple quotes from his article, if that's okay with you, David, Please, just to get kind of like behind the logic of this, okay? So he goes on to write, quote, in order to be admitted to certain Washington jewelry stores, customers have to ring a bell. According to the owner of one store, only one type of person does not get admitted, young black males. The owner says they are the ones who stick him up. Are these examples of racism? Well, as for me, I'm with the store owners. Wait, is this written by, uh, this is the same Richard Cohen that was just writing an article before his recent retirement about how Trump is actually the racist one and, and Democrats need to like really do something about it in order to stop racism in their country. Yeah, probably. He was writing for the Washington Post until like just a couple of years ago. Cool. <laughs> That's super cool. That's very cool. And so he goes on to say, quote, of course, all policies based on generalities have their injustices. A storekeeper might not know that the youths he has refused to admit are theology students, rich ones at that. But then, insurance companies had no way of knowing I was not a typical teenage driver. I paid through the nose anyway. So he's comparing the fact that 
black people are, are like systemically like denied access to the same things that white people are. He's comparing that to the fact that when he was a, a young buck white teenager, he had to pay the same insurance premiums that every single other white teenager in the country had to pay. And he's like, see, you know, it's, it's, I understand. And like, that's just the way it is sometimes, you know? He, he finishes um, by saying, you know, we should all be sensitive to race, but considering race and deciding to turn a customer away based on race, well, that's not racism. And he finishes his article saying, quote, let he who would open the door throw the first stone. What? <laughs> I, lo- I love this like uh, witty attempt at like uh, a final line where like the-, the original line in the Bible is like, um, let he who is without sin throw the first stone, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, if you're so blameless, throw the first stone. He's basically saying there's no one in this world who would open the door for a black person. He's like, how, you know, you can't really criticize these store owners because, I mean, who wouldn't? close the door right like a literal closing the door on on somebody's ability to do something uh closing the door on their future like quite literally cool and um one of the reasons i i I wanted to bring this example up of the buzzers is because uh i recently watched uh curb your enthusiasm i'd never watched the show before but i watched a couple episodes and in the first season there's an episode where the whole plot revolves around the fact that this Larry David guy, who's like a rich uh, Los Angeles type, he's like the writer of Seinfeld. Well, he tries to go into a jewelry store to buy a bracelet, and he gets denied at the buzzer because he's wearing, like, he hasn't shaved and he's wearing a T-shirt, and the, the like the people inside the store mistake him for a, a construction worker, and he's like, "No, I'm not a construction worker. I'm like a rich guy." And so he spends the whole episode trying to get into this jewelry store. Like he goes to grab his friend Richard Lewis and is like, Richard, you got to go with me to the store. They'll let you in. You're, you're wearing a suit. And, but then the store is closed. It's, it's a big conundrum for him. And finally, he finds a suit and he's like, oh, I got to put on a suit so I can get into this jewelry store. And it's so frustrating to me because th- this was written in 2000. He could have been, oh, I'm rich and I can wear whatever I want and you should let me in the store which would have had its own problems. But he took the, the lowest form, which is to justify and uh, legitimize this practice by saying like, oh, yes, of course, I should wear a suit and not look like a, a low working class type person. Mm-hmm. I, guess, I guess Larry David would not open the door so he cannot throw the first stone either. So, so wise. Yeah, well, I, I was trying to lead us into a direction of these like, more subtle forms of racism and exclusion, but like that specifically not opening a door because somebody on the other side is black is very explicitly uh, racist and very explicitly designed to exclude a certain group of people, in this case, young black men. But <laughs> to dial back to the direction I was trying to go in, in these more insidious ways that, that, that some people have realized, okay, you can't just make a law that says black people aren't allowed to go in stores, right? So instead, people solve this. Well, if I want to keep black people out of my town or Hispanics or any other minority group out of my town, and I can't just legislate that away because it's the 1960s now. And then we have like the Fair Housing Act or whenever that was passed, it slipped my mind. So I can't just prevent people from buying houses. We can't make laws that do that. But what we can do is uh, get tricky about 
just like arbitrary legal definitions. And you'll find that a lot of what we talk about today is just sort of arbitrary legal definitions and arbitrary enforcement. One of those arbitrary definitions is the family definition. And some of you listening in the United States probably are in violation of this uh, statute in whatever town you're in. But basically, a lot of communities in the U.S., a lot of cities, a lot of towns, municipalities have laws about who is allowed to live in a building, whether it's a house or an apartment, whatever. You can't have more than X number of people there unless, you know, you're related in some way, like a a, a specific type of family. Or uh, there's a roommate definition where oftentimes uh, you can't have more than like two roommates or three roommates depending on the number of bedrooms and stuff like that. Basically laws that were created at one point to try and prevent uh, like tenement situations where huge amounts of people are living in small areas. You know, maybe it was a well-intentioned law at one point. I don't know. What it was used for, though, was redefining family definitions and using that to exclude people. So this is sort of a cultural thing here, Daniel. Uh, The example I'm going to use specifically was uh, a municipality that decided that they were having too many Hispanics move into their town. And, uh, you know, these were a lot of up and coming Hispanics. They're making more money. So they were moving up into this, this place, buying property. And the people who'd been there for a while really didn't like it. They wanted to keep their town white. They wanted to keep it free of minorities, but they couldn't prevent these people from buying them because it's illegal to discriminate on housing based on race. So what did you do? Well, what the town did was they went out and they did basically a survey where they talked to people in the town and they, they figured out, you know, all sorts of different details about them. And they were looking for something that was very different for the white families than it was for the Hispanic families. And what they found is that almost all the white families had just the basic American-style nuclear family, which is a mother and or a father and, uh, you know, a couple children. And that was it. That's who would live in the house. Mm. But they found that most Hispanic families that were moving in were extended families. Mm -hmm. So it was the parents, the kids... Maybe both sets of grandparents, maybe just one set, maybe an uncle, like a larger family living in this place because it's more of a, of a cultural thing where a lot of groups would actually decide to live with their large family. It provides all sorts of benefits that the nuclear family doesn't. And maybe we should do a whole episode of the nuclear family, Daniel, at some point because it is fucking crazy. But they realized that this is a tool they could use to exclude people. So those same laws that had one point been used in order to prevent these sort of unhealthy tenement situations were now being used to say that a family, which is one of the allowed groups of people to live in these areas, included the nuclear family, so the a father and or a mother, the children, and up to but no more than two grandparents. So if I'm a Hispanic family that has two sets of grandparents, four people, or three people, or my uncle, or my aunt, or whatever, all living with me, suddenly I'm living in this town unlawfully because I don't qualify as a regular family. So my choices are either to buy another house or apartment or move somewhere else. So this practice was found sort of unconstitutional. Um, in 1977, there was a court case called Moore versus City of East Cleveland, where the Supreme Court basically said that you can't define a family too specifically. You know, th- that's illegal. Th- that's discrimination. But that didn't stop anybody. And so the example that I just gave you, Daniel, is from the 1990s um, in Illinois. But there are plenty of towns still that are doing the, the same thing today. These laws still exist in the books. Lots of t- Cities um, still enforce them. There's a famous example in Missouri in a, a town called Blackjack where actually this one was used on white people. An unmarried couple moved into a five-bedroom house, 
but the woman was pregnant. She had the baby and then the town kicked them out because in their books, three or more people who were unrelated were not allowed to live there. And this law was created specifically in order to uphold basically a religious idea of, of what a family is supposed to be, where if you have a child, you should be married. So this, in this case, is a wealthy family, Daniel, buying a large house. They just don't happen to be married, but they're, you know, a functioning family. And they're still being excluded by this practice because a lot of this is focused on minorities. A lot of this is focused specifically on the vulnerable, but it's also focused on people who aren't in power. And in this case, the religious right, the conservatives of this town were trying to enforce their specific religious beliefs on the people who lived in that town in order to create a more homogenous community based on their own culture and likes and basically preventing other people from being able to participate in that town without also participating in that shared culture. These exclusionary practices exist everywhere, as you keep seeing, and they're in things that you would never really necessarily think to look for, but exist all around you in a very insidious way. David, uh, you're blowing my mind right now because what you're talking about, like the origin of family values, I had never looked into that or really... I always knew that the whole family value thing was deeply tied to systems of patriarchy, capitalist production, and, and like the family unit as factory for next generation labor that's exploited and like all these ideas, but, and also white supremacy, but never really that, that specific example of seeing the difference in family structures between white families and um, other communities it just makes a lot of sense to me. It, it explains so much. Um, I'll talk about a little bit um, later um, another example that actively talks about family values as a way to justify denying housing to black people in, in Louisiana. But what came immediately to mind, David, and maybe this will seem unrelated, but I'll, I'll try to make it connect. You ever heard white people say that they have no culture? Have you ever heard that? Oh, yeah, Daniel. Like, oh, I have no culture. But what I realize is that white people do have culture. It's a very specific culture. It's, it's not... Mind blown. Mayonnaise, hot dog... No, it's not mayonnaise. It's definitely mayonnaise. More specifically, the culture of white people and white society is the culture of the individual. That we are, as white people, individuals. Our stories are individuals. And, and that explains how we... Um, like you're saying, our families are just constricted to just our core nuclear family. It also explains and, uh, something I want to talk about later about white flight and how white people, you know, to their own detriment, just pick up and move and like uproot themselves from what would be their communities at like the first inkling of, of fear that they have of some kind of integration or, or, or uh, desegregation. And, and what I think this is tied very intimately to white supremacy is because whiteness is, is a construct. It's, it's an abstract thing that's created. Uh, you know, white people are the ones who created all race. It, the, the concept of black people, the concept of white people. And those definitions change all the time. So like 100 years ago, Italians and Irish people weren't white. Right. So, so these are these are constructs that are created by white people as a way to wall themselves off from other people to create these exclusions and inclusions and basically devalue and dehumanize everyone else. And it probably starts with like colonialism, where white people or Europeans came over to uh, North America, South America, and immediately started 
committing genocide and, and mass murder. And what's interesting is that in this process of, of trying to dehumanize other people, what white people are really doing is destroying a piece of themselves. For example, you know, the colonizer describes indigenous people as barbaric and um, dehumanizes them. But to do that, carries out unbelievable acts of violence and murder, which, which are the type of things you would normally associate as very dehumanizing acts, or like only a, a non-human would commit murder, right? So it's like the flip, like the thing that the colonizer is trying to destroy, which is the so-called non-human, it's really destroying within themselves the thing that they're trying to create within themselves. And, and I don't know if this is making any sense, but it kind of I'm trying to bring it back to the whole family value thing and that in order to be white and in order to like protect this very sacred notion of like the family unit, white people have to destroy community. They have to destroy their ties to one another, not just to these other so-called races that they construct, but to their own neighbors and ultimately their own family members, their own grandmothers and grandfathers who their own parents who end up getting stuffed away in retirement homes never to be interacted with again it's it's really a pathology that runs deep within the society of the this individualized culture and maybe this is even the source of a lot of racism and and hatred in the first place i imagine that there's on a subtle level a hatred for other so-called races specifically because they have the very thing that makes them so human that white people have destroyed in themselves, these things like community and connection and relationship with one another. Uh, I, I agree a lot with what you're saying there, Daniel. And I mean, I don't want to speculate too deeply into what it is that like drives racism or like makes white culture, whatever mess that, that you seem to <laughs> identified as. Um, I, I, I've got theories, I've got lots of theories, but I don't know uh, if I fit them into our semi-factual show right now. Maybe that's a better topic to bring up at some point on uh, our weekly Twitch live streams. If you all want to come out and chat with us live, that's always a good place to do that. That's twitch.tv slash ashesashescast. Come check us out, hang out. It's always a fun time, and we play games. Made some sweet t-shirts last week, but... um. I know maybe that that's a little rambly, but it will connect to some tangible examples that I'm going to bring up uh, very soon. Yes, I think I think I know where you're going with that, and uh, we'll open that gate when we get there. But um, hey, hey, you like what I did there? Well, only if we have the right code. Uh huh. Uh huh. We get on the list. So we're still talking about racism here, huh, Daniel? Um, boy, oh boy, do I have a big book of racism in front of me? I've got a whole bunch of sticky notes in here of my favorite racist things Americans do. I've already shared some of them, but um, let's find another fun one. How about, how's that sound? Your big book, David. Well, so I want to start this one off again in a tiny bit of history where we used to have these things that were basically zoning laws for racism, which is, we've talked a little bit about zoning in our suburbs episodes and the types of messes it can create and what a fucking catastrophe it has been for this country. And um, it just keeps getting worse. So if you ever want to like really get mad and confused, uh, zoning is a good topic to dig into. And maybe we'll do more um, exploration of that. But 
this is semi-related to zoning, and zoning is a powerful tool of exclusion and um, and and racism that is used in this country. And we're not going to really get into that tonight because it is so large and multifaceted. But in a similar way, there was a more explicit form of of racism that would happen with the real estate and legal process, where sometimes Daniel and this this isn't really anymore, but from the late 1800s into the about 1950s. There were these things called racial deed restrictions. I know what a deed restriction is. Yeah. Well, just it's a deed restriction. Why don't you explain what a deed restriction is first? A deed restriction is when you sell a property, you can sometimes put in the deed that you're transferring to the new owner a certain restriction. Like, hey, I'm only selling this property to you so long as it's never used for like a liquor store or you know, a music festival, or you can't convert it to something that I don't want to see. Yeah, exactly. And th- that's straight from the real estate expert's mouth himself. So um, you all can take that as fact. Well, guess what, Daniel? In the past, you were able to create those racial deed restrictions where you would say, oh, yeah, of course, I'll sell you this property, but uh, you can never sell this property to a black person or a Jew or a Mexican or a Native American or whatever race of the day that I don't like. And that's it. And this property would basically at that point become a white only piece of property. And, you know, on a one off, it's whatever. It's a positive, a single like moment of racism. But when you had this happening over large towns, you would have townships that would become basically white only. And, and this existed up until the 1950s when it was eventually struck down by those same laws, challenged a lot by the NAACP in, in court starting in the 1920s. It was destroyed and taken apart. But the legacy of this is still present in a lot of the towns and uh, municipalities around the country where areas are very specifically segregated, where these communities that were protected by these racial deed restrictions decades ago at this point, 70 years ago at the, at the earliest, were or are still basically entirely white, while the parts of town where minorities could purchase property are at this point basically entirely minority, unless they've been gentrified, which is a whole other process. We're not even going to talk about gentrification, just realize here, Daniel, but gentrification is a huge process of exclusion. Citations Needed has a episode recently where they talk about HGTV and the promotion of like property flippers, like house flippers, property brothers. Like they do a whole like hour and a half on how these shows basically legitimize gentrification. And uh, I would recommend that. Yeah, that's a great resource. We'll link that on the website. Yeah, since we don't have time to go over it today. Again, that could be its own topic or series or whatever. Well, so I, I, I want to take this idea of racial deed restrictions and instead take it to something that's called racial staring. And what this is, is, uh, and they've tested this in a couple scenarios, and there's all these like high-profile lawsuits about this very recently, including with this company in New York that I truly hate with all my heart, and I'll name them and shame them in a second. What this is basically is that when you try and purchase property, the options that are given to you by realtors, by uh, the people in this process, by mortgage underwriters, by you know the whole process of buying a house, which is long and complicated, all along the way, the people in there will steer you into certain specific areas, ideas, and ultimately property based, not surprisingly, on your race. And so, I mean, whatever, you know, this doesn't sound too crazy. It just sounds, okay, yeah, and maybe it's a subconscious, unconscious thing that people are just naturally, oh, you want to be in this part of town or look at this area. There's a lot of people like you in here. But it's a lot more insidious than that. So there were a lot of tests done where 
activist organizations, legal groups, they would take couples looking to purchase a house. They would take a white one and they'd take a black one and they'd run them through the same exact realtors and say they want to buy property in the same exact areas, the same neighborhoods, many times with very specific legal requirements and things. I'll, I'll talk about a specific example in a moment. And the realtor would say, oh, no, no, you don't want to live there if it's a white area to the black family. They say, oh, we have much better deals over here that you would much prefer. And they would, they would take them over there and instead show them those properties. If it was the white family asking them in the white area, they'd be like, yeah, of course, let me hook you up, get you the best deal, no problem. If the white family said that they want to live in the black area, the realtors would be like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't think you're going to fit in over there. Um, you know, it's sort of high crime, whatever. I think you'd be much happier in this area that has these better schools or whatever and point them into the, the white district. And maybe this is not intentional. Maybe this is just a product of somebody trying to be a salesperson, knowing that people like to be comfortable when they're buying the house and maybe their own subconscious uncomfortable uh, nature with minorities or being surrounded in cultures that they don't experience or understand make them uncomfortable. And so they associate that feeling with how they think their customers might feel like. But this is a very real problem that for a long time, and it has been cut down substantially by people being able to browse real estate listings themselves on websites and in other media. But realtors were sort of a gatekeeping of segregation for a large amount of this country's history after the passage of all these fair housing acts, where though you could buy property anywhere, how can you buy property that you don't know exists in the first place, or you don't know is offered to you, or is available to purchase? These realtors for a long time were the gatekeepers of that information. And in doing so, they became the practical mechanisms of segregation in this country, at least on a sort of labor basis. Of course, there's lots of physical and, and other architectural methods of, of creating uh, segregation, which we may or may not get to today. But this is a, a, a huge insidious practice. And it, it came out in, in even worse examples where there's a town or a, a small private neighborhood co-op something here in New York, and you need three letters of recommendation, Daniel, to live there. So the letters of recommendation have to be for the people who already live in this and own property in this town. So one of these legal groups had two couples approach a realtor in order to purchase property in this land, a black couple and a white couple. And the black couple was told by the same realtor that they would never, ever be able to find those letters of recommendation. Neither couple knew anybody in the neighborhood. They were just strangers coming in. They said that, oh yeah, it's impossible. You'll never get in there. You'll never make it. Let me show you some other stuff. What do you think happened with the white couple? They got favorable outcomes. Of course. The realtor was like, oh, you don't know anybody there? That's no problem. I got friends. We'll get you some letters. We'll get you right in there. There's a bunch of property available. You can take your pick because I think you'd really fit into the neighborhood. Of course, they got sued and they lost a bunch of money. But uh, this is not something that was happening a long time ago. It's still actively happening. Uh, there's a very large real estate group in New York um, called a Corcoran Group. I really hate them a lot for a variety of reasons. The real estate market here in New York is terrible. And uh, the rental market in particular is very predatory against renters in defense of these real estate leeches and the landlord leeches, you know, operate the whole system. And Corcoran is one of the most egregious violators of this. The city recently passed a bunch of protection for renters that would punish property owners and not even rental people, the broker agents and stuff. And Corcoran didn't like this because they felt like it could cut into their profits and they sued the city and there's this ongoing legal battle over it. And I'm really mad about it. But 
Anyway, fuck Corcoran. It, they were caught doing this as late as 2006, and I'm positive they're still doing it now. They just weren't busted for it. It was basically a sting operation. And, and so this exists. This defines our neighborhoods now, even through to today. And so, you know, now we could say, well, maybe these websites where you can browse and peruse prevent this from happening as much. But who is to say that these algorithms that are designed to promote certain, you know, like, oh, look at this top match for you based on your criteria aren't doing some sort of insidious racism in this process as well, Daniel, where we've outsourced this process, not just to real estate agents, which can be captured in these stings and ultimately punished, but to these black box algorithms that based on a variety of data that they pull in from a bunch of sources that claim they know who you are, but really have no idea, and then certainly don't have any idea exactly what you want, are now being used to dictate the way that we lay out our city, in addition, of course, to the, you know, the market forces and stuff. But this is the type of stuff that we don't think about, but we interact with constantly that are quite literally shaping our communities, our cities, who lives where, and who is even able to live there in the first place. David, uh, I feel like I'm going to burst your bubble here because I, f- I feel like you're reaching for some kind of like conspiracy. Oh, I got my tinfoil hat on. Some like subtle force that's like still segregating our towns as if we need one. Yeah, I, I keep coming up with these subtle things, and you're like, oh, yeah, they just don't let black people in their store. Easy. Yeah, look, uh, I'll just tell you real, right now, there's a paper that came out like two months ago, uh, like June or July of 2020, by the Boston Foundation. It's called Qualified Renters Need Not Apply, Race and Voucher Discrimination in the Metro Boston Rental Housing Market. Long story short, they found that housing providers, real estate professionals, they are hanging up the phones and denying the black people access to rental units. And the disparity is like twice as many white people get to see apartments as black people in this Boston area. So it's, it's not even, you don't even need to really uh, speculate here. This is going on right now. Well, the, the thing that really bothers me about this is like, it's already, the rental markets are hard um, in, in New York, especially, but all over the country, renting something is hard. It's expensive. Up until recently in New York, if you wanted to rent something, first you have to qualify as whatever the rent is by a month. So let's let's just for the sake of simplicity, and this is obviously a very imaginary rent that you'll never see here. Um, say an apartment costs one thousand dollars a month. Okay, sign me up. You need to make forty times that value before they'll even let you sign something as as your annual salary. So to live in a $1,000 apartment, you need to make $40,000. To live in a $2,000 apartment, which is a more realistic New York price and something that is very common to find here for a one bedroom, that's $2,000 a month. So that's $80,000 a year in salary in a city that has a $60,000 median salary. This is why everyone here has roommates. Well, on top of that, up until this recent law passed that I was talking about that Corcoran is suing the city about, along with some other real estate broker firms, um, you would have to pay the first month's rent, the last month's rent, security deposit, and then a broker's fee that ranges from one month to 10 to 15% of the total price of moving in. Yeah, that's how it is in Boston, too. Recently, I looked at a place, and it was being rented by Corcoran. And this broker's fee and all these other things were supposed to have gotten rid of. Um, so what the, what the rule is now is they can't charge you first month, last month rent. Uh, you have to, it's just first month and security deposit, which can't exceed the first month's rent. And what Corcoran is suing about is the, um, the broker's fee, which was made illegal because it wasn't illegal to be paid. It was illegal for renters to pay it. Landlords instead would have to pay, which makes sense because the landlord is trying to find a real estate agent to put somebody in their house. And it doesn't make sense 
for the renter to pay the real estate agent for the privilege of moving into the house. It makes sense for the landlord who is paying for the service to do it. I, I'm furious about this. But so they were going to get rid of the broker's fee, but they didn't. Whatever. It's back now. It's a, there's a court case coming up in September that'll decide this once and for all. Hopefully it keeps getting pushed because of coronavirus. But that meant moving into this place I was looking at would cost something like $14,000 up front between all these fees. So that means to even move into a new place, potentially to save money, you have to have $14,000 sitting in your bank account ready to move in. And, and so, you know, maybe this is a dramatic example. Maybe you can find a no-fee apartment, but you're still going to be paying first month's rent and security deposit. In New York City, that's at least $4,000. That means you have to pay $4,000 to move into a new place. And for families that are being evicted because they can't already afford their rent of just one month, how can you find the money to pay two months rent in that same time? This happens not just here in, in, in New York. This happens all across the country. First month's rent and security deposit are the least you're going to find to move in any places. So a lot of families literally can't afford to move into apartments. So what do they do, Daniel? They move into extended stay hotels frequently. And this isn't usually a deal. Usually you end up spending more net. But you just don't have to have the money up front for it. Or or they move in with family and now they're subject to the whole family values uh, pressure. Exactly. So what a lot of municipalities have done also is they've banned hotel stays exceeding 30 days. It's called a 30-day limit law. You find it in a lot of areas. And the idea is that, oh, yeah, a lot of this crime and stuff is centered around people staying in, in hotels for more than 30 days. They're associated with way more police calls and whatever. And whatever but like we'll just outlaw the crime this has effectively prevented people from ever being able to move anywhere if you can't afford all this upfront money to move into apartment you have to instead pay what you can to move into one of these hotels if you extend the stay it's commonly 500 fine per day past the 30 days which you obviously can't pay so that means every 30 days at most you're moving to a new place to live picking up your life and moving every 30 days and you know, this is very clearly a law not designed to help anybody, but to design to punish. A lot of these laws, in the end of the day, they're, they're not about helping the communities. They're designed to punish people they don't want to participate within these communities. And this sort of punitive style of creating community does not work. When you model your community after prisons, we're surrounded in spikes and battlements in order to keep people from enjoying the public spaces. When you get rid of things, like public bathrooms or public spaces or abilities for people to sit outside and actually enjoy the community and instead prevent them from, from mingling with each other, forcing them instead to either participate in the, the, the private industry where these spaces can be created if you pay to be a customer there or within your own home where you're outside of all this and not surrounded by anybody. There are no other limitations. When you create this virtual prison of a community through your punitive style of legislating and and, and running a municipality, it's no wonder that everyone is fucking nuts in this country, Daniel. It's no, I don't think that, that this is a white culture here where it's all about individualism. I think we've all just been driven mad because we're all in this sort of virtual solitary confinement and the communities are basically modeled after prisons. It's all Americans know. It's why they can't imagine a world without police because everyone's a police officer in the United States. You're all policing each other all the time. You're all just absolutely fucking nuts. Because that's what this fucking clown country has devolved into. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. I got a lot more examples. I'm just really mad about this real estate stuff. We're all clown people living in a crazy, Oof. 
country. Well, speaking of clowns, clown country, Daniel. Speaking of clowns, let me tell you something. You can't, you walk around as a cl- in a clown costume, you can't get anywhere in this world. You want to talk about exclusion? You remember when people were doing that, like a few years ago? People just standing around in creepy clown costumes? Oh, wait. I actually, I do have a point with where I'm going. This clown country, because that's what this is, has decided that the latest and greatest technique in order to kick people out of the environments they don't want them in, it's not sprinklers anymore, it's not spikes, it's not benches you can't sit in, it's not lack of public bathrooms, which I didn't even talk about, but I'm not going to because you get it, because there are no places to piss without paying in this country. It's none of those things. It's annoying music. Annoying sounds blasted in order to literally drive people crazy. What are you talking about? There are towns, uh, there are private strip malls all around this country that actually don't want people hanging out there. They don't want them there overnight. They don't want them there even during the day. They say, just go away. So what they do is, and and you might remember the, the mosquito sound makers. Um, people talk about that a few years ago. It's It's... Everyone forgot about it, but they play like really high ultrasonic noises that only young people can hear because young people have better hearing. And as you get older, your, your hearing dies. So you put this really high pitched whine and it really bothers young people and they all leave. So you get rid of all the teenagers that you don't want and you only have boring adults shopping at your place or whatever. That, that's, that's one thing that's installed all over the place. You know, China, we have this like, mental image when you're sitting in like an elevator or like in a lobby of a store and they're playing like classical music or like smooth jazz or something, right? Yeah. Give me some of that smooth jazz. Make me feel at ease and at peace with the world. Yeah, exactly. Well, historically, that's always been attributed to the fact that classical performances, these uh, smooth jazz pieces, they're copyright free. So you can play those in your area without having to worry about those horrible IP uh, restrictions and stuff, which we've talked about and which are terrible, but that's not the real reason these things are played. Uh, in the 1970s, there was some thinking that when the brain hears music that it likes, it creates serotonin and it feels good, right? That's why you do it. And when you're doing something that you like, this brain does the same thing. But when you're hearing music you don't like, horrible music, the brain doesn't create serotonin and actively prevents serotonin from being created, even if you're doing something you like, like hanging out with your friends, say in a park or in a lobby or something. So what businesses decided was we're going to get rid of these unwanted people by playing classical music because teenagers, once again, hate classical music. And black people, they hate classical music. Only white old people can appreciate the subtleties of Stravinsky or whoever. So if we just blast this shit loud enough, then we're going to drive away everyone we don't want, right? Well, it didn't really work. So then they switched to smooth jazz, which nobody likes, and they play that anyway. I don't know why. But that wasn't enough. So what some towns have done now, and this is happening right now in Florida in this fucking clown country, Daniel, is they, at night, in order to keep the homeless people out of this country, and nobody hates the homeless more than Florida, except maybe Seattle and Portland and New York San and Francisco. Chicago and Los Angeles and San Francisco and Atlanta, Atlanta and Houston and everywhere. But Portland, they really hate them in Florida a lot too. If you're homeless and you're sleeping in the public spaces that are available to you in this town, what you get to hear all night is baby shark do 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 baby shark do 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 baby shark do 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 baby shark. Stop, please stop. 
Baby shark. I don't know if that's how it goes, but the fucking baby shark song, which if you haven't heard before, don't look it up. It will literally rot your brain. They blast this all night long. There are other towns where they blast. It's a small world all night in order to keep people from outside their stuff. Literally the same techniques used by the CIA in Guantanamo Bay to torture prisoners. We are using here at home in municipalities in order to prevent unhoused people from being able to sleep. That's America. Clown country, David. I don't even know what to say to that. That's, that's just pure evil. That's cruel. What's crazy to me is that these are municipalities, so there was probably like a vote, you know, like a bunch of city council members got together and were like, you know what we all have in common? We hate homeless people. And you know what we also hate? We hate the baby shark song. You know what? Let's just blast it in our parks. Hey, guys, I got an idea. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, it, I mean, it was probably like, like applauded like as like this genius thing, you know? Yeah. Speaking of other dumb things, I'm just going to quickly list these off because I know this episode's getting long and you don't want to hear another two hours of. I, I literally have a 500-page book in front of me of these these things, and I have more sources too. So, um, a lot of cities, again in Florida especially, have banned feeding people outside. You're not allowed to feed other people unless you have a permit. So, like your family barbecue, uh-uh, not happening. That's illegal. Oh wait, but for some reason they don't enforce that. What they do enforce though is charities and groups of activists like Food Not Bombs that would come out in the municipality, and provide food once a week to the homeless people that live there. They would say, you know, it sucks being unhoused. It sucks being out there, not knowing where your meal or whatever's coming from. Let me, at least one day, make food and give it out outside. You know, because not everybody has a soup, soup kitchen. Not everybody has access to the space that you can actually invite people in in order to eat this, like a church or community center does. And there's more than enough unhoused people that need this help. Who would disagree that this is a bad thing? Who would disagree that this is a bad idea? Well, apparently a lot of politicians, once again in Florida, have agreed that this is a bad idea. And so they've made it a crime to feed people. Not just unhoused people, not homeless people. They didn't say that in the law, but just feed anybody. Unless you have a permit, which they don't give. So like if, you, if you're walking down the sidewalk with your honey, and you're wearing a pair of nice slacks and some boat shoes, and you reach in your back pocket and pull out a Twix bar, and you take the left Twix and you feed it to yourself and then you reach over with the right Twix and, and give it to Ooh, your this, honey. This is a good Twix ad. I'm guessing nothing will happen to you. Yeah. But get a, get a couple carrots together. Get a little, little uh, some lettuce. Try to give it to a homeless person. Feeding a rabbit. And all of a sudden you're getting raided by SWAT. Yeah. No, you break off that Twix, you give it to your, your honey, you're fine. You break that Twix in half. You give it to a homeless person, the SWAT team's there, they're shooting you in the face. Uh, no, but you will, you will pay a fine. And they actually have actively prosecuted these groups, specifically Food Not Bombs. This was a statute designed primarily to attack that group, but uh, it has been copied all over the country. And um, as far as I know, most of these are still in effect. So fuck all these people. Um, in the same vein, camping has been made illegal in most towns. This is to prevent usually, once again, unhoused homeless people from erecting tents anywhere, tents on sidewalks, tents under overpasses, anywhere there they would not normally be hurting people. Well, these are illegal now, and uh, they do sweeps where they clean all this stuff off and rip down your tent and maybe arrest you. 
This happens all the time in Los Angeles, other cities. And it's related very closely to these laws that are all across the country that are uh, called sidewalk management plans. And these were introduced ostensibly as the creation of business districts, where how can we create these right-of-ways where we want to encourage pedestrian foot traffic and stuff? So they introduced in a lot of cities around the country what's called a sidewalk management plan, which varies from from town to town. Um, the statues are sort of all over the place. But the basic idea is, is that it's illegal to block a sidewalk. And block a sidewalk is a very loose term where it basically means anytime a homeless person sits down or, uh, you know, if I'm sitting down or if I want to put something on the sidewalk, the cops are going to come and either find me or kick me out. And uh, these are used as as huge bludgeons of force for these towns in order to make sure that people basically aren't allowed outside because the only, you're not allowed on private property, right? Somebody's going to come and kick you out. So that leaves you with public property, P- property that ostensibly we all own, that we contribute to. Well, if you're homeless, get the fuck off. You have to go somewhere else because the town has decided that you're a blight and they'd rather you die somewhere out of their sight than be able to spend the night or sit on the ground. Uh, somewhere where they have to acknowledge your presence. And that's really what all this comes down to, because when you acknowledge the presence of homeless people, right, Daniel, you're acknowledging that your town isn't as perfect as you want to pretend it is. It hurts your property values. It acknowledges that there are problems in your town that you should be fixing. It says, well, maybe we should raise taxes. Maybe we should move the money that we're wasting on things like police and instead put it on helping. All these types of questions and problems that nobody wants to deal with especially in America where we have this denial that's centered on the individual and the capability of the individual to ignore everything in the world that is telling them that their world is actually a horrible, broken, rotten thing that's going to come and kill, if not them, then their children and their grandchildren. Well, as long as we can ignore that, we can pretend that's not happening to me, it's never going to happen to me, then okay, baby, it's gravy. That's the American culture. I got a bunch more, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting, getting down to these, the last few here, you know, the good ones. Daniel. The good ones. Uh, I do briefly want to mention loitering and, and cruising. Cruising is when, you know, like, uh, you've seen American Graffiti. It's a movie about teenagers driving around by Steven Spielberg or George Lucas or whoever the fuck it is. Whatever. That's the whole movie. And, you know, growing up in the suburbs, Daniel, that's a lot of what we did. There's nothing to do in the suburbs because of the problems we have identified here, where there is no public space anymore. There's nowhere to go and hang out. You go to the, the, the malls to kick you out. They play music. They don't let you skateboard. So you got to just get in a car and drive because there's nothing else to do. Well, it turns out that was fine when white teenagers were doing it in the 50s. That's fine when teenagers do it in the suburbs in the 90s. But when cruising culture became a thing for Hispanics, then all of a sudden a lot of cities, especially Atlanta, passed these no cruising laws. And what a no cruising zone, which is usually how they're they're implemented is is that you're not allowed to pass a sign more than twice in two hours which first off you know like if you're just fucking going to the store and back i think you're in violation of this but what in a country where we've sacrificed so much public space in order to construct this car-centric culture where our cities are designed to force people into these automobiles and give them no other option but to drive around somewhere we've decided that this is a bad thing when it's unwanted people do once again, this comes down to the fact that we've created this, this system, Daniel, that driving is only supposed to be about consumerism, right? Let me take you from home to either your job so you can generate wealth for somebody else or to a place where you can purchase something once again to generate wealth for somebody else. 
And any other form of driving in between is something that's not wanted. So, you know, street racing, definitely no. You know, maybe there's valid reasons for that. It can be dangerous. Um, it can put other people's lives at risk, which is fine. You know, if somebody wants to risk their own life, whatever. But if you were going to put other people's lives at risk, that's a problem. Okay, fair enough. I don't entirely agree with it, but fair enough. But driving around because you like driving doesn't hurt anybody except, you know, the earth and the climate and all the animals on it and billions of the future lives of children, whatever. But, you know, ignoring all that, it definitely doesn't hurt Atlanta. It definitely doesn't hurt the cities that have established these, these no cruising zones. It does hurt, however, minorities and the police that use these laws in order to specifically target minorities, pull them over, and then escalate the searches that go from there. And we see so frequently in the news what happens when police decide to escalate these traffic stops. One of the most dangerous things that can happen to you as a minority. And we, as, as citizens of this country, are creating laws in order to basically give police a free pass in order to pull people over whenever they want. They say, oh, you were cruising. No proof. They don't have to have any proof. They just say you saw your car earlier. Whatever. That's enough to pull you over. In the same sense, loitering is the 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 pedestrian version of cruising, right? Um, except the opposite, where you're just sort of hanging out in a place. And there are loitering laws in almost every part of this country, and almost no one has properly defined loitering. Some states say that it's standing around with a criminal intent. Some states say that you're just literally standing. Some states say that, that the loitering law is you are not allowed to loiter, whatever the fuck loiter means. But what this is used is another bludgeon to selectively enforce against groups that are unwanted. So well, once again, we have no public spaces anywhere. There's no parks for things to sit down. You can't go anywhere, whatever. So what people do is they just hang out in front of stores or they hang out in front of just public works, whatever, because there's nowhere else to go in this clown country. And suddenly that becomes illegal because you're not participating in these larger consumer products. It's, it's because you are oftentimes a minority and they're trying to say, a bunch of black men standing in front of my store is going to devalue the property or it's going to hurt the value of my neighborhood or, you know, it's making me feel unsafe. So I'm going to call the cops on them and then it's going to escalate until it turns into a murder. Whatever this is, this is another tool that is designed to be used in communities in order to exclude people from participating within that community, to exclude them from the public space and either force them to stay out of sight in their homes or leave the community altogether. And this is something that isn't just limited to certain parts of this country. It is ubiquitous. It is in almost every city municipality that, that has one of these statutes. And not only that, but you'll see these oftentimes written down in signs that are carried in front of uh, stores, um, that are put in front of neighborhoods, that are put in front of oftentimes even people's doors. No loitering and no solicitation, right? Everybody knows those signs. And it's so funny, too, when I see a store that has like, Immigrants, refugees, welcome. No loitering. Right next to each other. One says, come in, come join us. And the other says, get the fuck out of here. You're not wanted. And that sort of insane dialectic is the American experience. No wonder we're all crazy. No wonder this is a fucking clown country, Daniel. David, uh, you were talking about cruising. Yeah, the, the legal cruising. There is another meaning for the word cruising, which is, which is also an exclusionary or uses an exclusionary practice. That's not as um, the other cruising is 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 typically an LGBT thing, um, and it's it's sort of fallen out of of uh, legal enforcement. But yes, continue. Well, I'm not even talking about that, but it just reminded me of my all time one of my all time favorite films. It's called The Cruise. It's a 1998 documentary uh, that follows this like really eccentric uh, New York City tour guide. 
like uh, one of those people who's on like the megaphone. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Have you seen that? And film? he's like he's riding on top of like the tour bus. Yeah, and like the whole time that they're just filming him, just like describing New York in this very like creative and artistic like, and he's like very like uh, you know affable like. I wouldn't describe him as charismatic, but he, you know, is like really friendly, uh, just a lovable, lovable character of New York. Highly recommend it. Yeah. So that's a positive, positive thing. Yeah, which has, well, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but um, I feel like we could go on, like, uh, or maybe you could go on and on about some examples, David, some rants and stuff. I can. I got, well, I I do have one more thing that I want to, there are two more things I just want to say. If you're going to cut me off, just let me get my, my five minutes apiece in here, and then you can <laughs> ramble. There's two other, two other groups or two other things I really want to identify as, as insidious ways that, that cities are controlled. Yeah, four minutes and 45 seconds. One is something... Okay, stop timing me. One is something about um, shade. You know, trees are associated with, with wealthy parts of cities, and there's a reason, because they make it nice to be outside. Especially right now, we're in the middle of summer. It's August. It's hot as hell. It's in the 90s everywhere and um, in the 40s, whatever. It's hot and there's nowhere to go inside because everything is closed for coronavirus. You can't go in anywhere. There's no air conditioning. There's no public spaces. So you have to find shade if you're going to be outside and you don't want to be cooped up in your apartment all the time. So yeah, you're going to go outside. And New York is lucky in a lot of areas. It does have a lot of trees, um, at least in in my parts of Brooklyn and in my parts of Queens, but that's not the case everywhere. And oftentimes the city has introduced uh, basically legal preventions of people constructing their own shade outside. New York is better about this in a lot of places, but uh, this is a really big problem right now in Los Angeles, for example, where they've been in the middle of this heat wave. Temperatures have been in the high 90s and the hundreds, setting records. I think one of the highest temperatures ever recorded was in Death Valley just the other day. It's hot as hell. And there's really no trees to speak of in that city. Uh, A lot of them have been torn down. But also, a lot of it is intentional, where, where they don't want people going outside and walking. It's, just, it's a car city. So this stuff was just seen as impediments. They were cleared away. People want uh, nice views of the sky. So they built palm trees, which don't really offer any shade or much of anything besides the aesthetic look of the city. And so uh, there are people who are like, well, you know, I want to build shade. And there's a great article that I'll link on the website about this. It's actually my favorite essay that I read for this, this episode. Um, just search shade on ashesashes.org when you go to this page. But, you know, he tried to build a shade outside of his, his shop for people to come and sit on. He's, he's a Hispanic man. There's a lot of Hispanic families that come there. That, so he built this. People come and sit down, old ladies, um, the young families. And then the city came and tore it down and told him it was illegal to have. So everyone would just have to wait out in the sun. And there was no reason he wasn't hurting anybody, but there's these, these legal laws that exist because they see certain groups of people as blight and they want to get them out of sight and preventing them from being outside in the first place to making your environment literally unlivable is one of the ways to do that. And this is an increasing problem as we see climate change ramp up. And the masters of all these exclusionary principles, Daniel, I think we have to give a shout out to the most horrible place in the United States, if not the world which is the villages in Florida, the uh, active retirement community down there for rich, old white people. Which I think, David, is the, it's the largest retirement community 
like enclosed retirement community. Yeah, there's in the over hundred thousand people or families there. It's basically its own municipality. I'm getting wild. Um, at some point, it was even issuing bonds. Um, it was investigated by the IRS and whole thing. It turned out fine, but this place is is hugely white. It's like ninety percent white. Over that, um, it's very wealthy in a state that's otherwise not nearly as wealthy and not nearly as white as Florida has a very large minority population. A very diverse state, but not here in the villages. It's very homogenous, and they've achieved this through a lot of of methodologies. The property there is is not crazy. It's more expensive than you normally pay, but it's not crazy. It's not out of the reach of people. But for one, there's an age limit. Um, you can't have children there. So you know, I, I'm not even entirely sure how that works. I guess it's private property. They don't have to do anything. But so if, if you're under a certain age, you can't buy the buy property there. Whatever. But they've also created all these extra add-on fees. Everyone who goes there basically has to join this expensive golf club, whether or not you like golf. And there's a lot of these other things. They're called exclusionary amenities, where you design mandatory fees in an area and people have to participate in them in order to be able to stay a resident in this community. And this prices out a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't see it or people that, that say, I, I don't want to pay for these, these products. I don't golf. I don't want this. And they feel resentment about spending thousands of dollars a year on a product that they will never use or don't appreciate at all. Uh, they've also gone so far as to create a fake history for this town where it's basically, it was literally designed by park architects that designed Universal Studios in parts where they've, they have like fake old buildings and with like history plaques that tell a history story about like the town that they live in. But the, the history is entirely made up. This town is built on Native American land that was all the Native Americans were slaughtered and kicked off. And then farmers moved in. And then there was a large black community there that was also kicked off. And uh, there's still actually a large black cemetery in the middle of the villages, but it's, it's completely surrounded by a bamboo forest and a wall. So nobody even knows it's there. Um, or the people who live next to it actually have no idea that they live next to a black cemetery, a historic black cemetery. But Instead, this town is filled with these, these fake history plaques that there's like 56 of them, I think, and all but two are uh, about white European names, fictional people that they said lived here before. And two are uh, referring to this, this quote-unquote Sanchez family, which is the only nod to any non-Europeans in the entire area, despite the fact that half the town and the, the districts in the town are named after like Hispanic things. It's like El Cortez, whatever. It's pathological. There's a whole lot more there. Um, but the people there are really happy. They, um, they love being racist. And they love being enabled in the racism and not having to, to, to see minorities. So, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's good that it's there. David. I'm stopping. You got it. I've let you go on, go on long enough. I got more. I've, you know, you've been going on a million miles an hour, 60 RPMs. It's not. That's um, not fast. And it's, it's, it's time to slow it down. In fact, where's that smooth jazz at? Oh, that's better. Slow it down a little bit. Let's let's get a little uh, let's get a little smooth here. Let's let's talk about some things that are a little bit more ephemeral, some more conceptual things. You know, in fact, I just I took my pants off because. Well, not related to this, but it gets hot in my apartment. David doesn't let me. That's what I do for the streams. He, David doesn't let me put uh, turn my AC on because he says it. He yells at me. He says it screws up the audio. Don't worry, I got stuff underneath. But 
You know, I, I rambled a little bit earlier about like whiteness and like the destruction of things and very internal things and like path pathology in society. And I want I want to talk just briefly about the suburbs, how it connects to climate change, and how we're all worse off for it. And we've been talking about cities, so maybe it seems a little bit strange to talk about the suburbs, but. We really can't conceptualize the suburbs without the city because, in so many ways, the suburbs of the United States—that is, you know, the sprawling, car-centered, gated communities and endless identical strip malls and Denny's and uh, fast food—in a lot of ways, they exist in reaction to the cities. You know, they in this way they are an extension of the city, just a um, a mirror opposite where. People see uh, urban environments as diverse, and that gets associated with crime. So you have a lot of white flight escaping to these enclaves and gated communities in the suburbs, where it can be, uh, where they can be homogenous in their communities. And we're all worse off from this process. We're all, we're all worse off from these forces of exclusion that you're talking about, David. And you were mentioning racial steering or, or the steering of uh, uh, black people away from white housing. And a prime example from history is the practice of blockbusting, you know, where maybe you were giving the benefit of the doubt to some racial steering, saying, oh, maybe it's just subconscious biases. Well, the practice of blockbusting was a very deliberate attempt by uh, real estate brokers and agents to make a lot of money off of the exploitation of black people but even more money off of the fear that white people had, the unjustified and irrational fear they had of integrating with African Americans. And blockbusting, the practice took place between 1948, um, and it was rampant up until the 1980s. And basically, the practice went like this. I'm a big, bad real estate agent. I'm looking to make a lot of money. So what I do is I find a neighborhood that's all white, uh, maybe this is in the city, maybe it's uh, slightly outside the core city, and I'd start talking to the white neighbors or uh, or I put up a for sale sign and I start saying, oh, uh, you know, the, the black people are coming. They're coming. Th they want to move into your homes. They're going to be next door. And then your real estate value is going to plummet and crime is going to be everywhere and you're going to lose everything. And these white people would get so afraid that they would that that some black person was going to move into their neighborhood that they would sell their property at a loss. And so the real estate agent would make a little bit of money off of that sale. But then because this housing stock is now open and no white person wants to move in, the agents would uh market it to black people and sell the property back at uh way above what the property was worth. So simultaneously driving white people out of their communities, uprooting them, and then making a lot of money profiting off of the fact that black families could not get loans and they could not buy houses anywhere else because of those things you talked about earlier, like racial steering, also redlining, um, and just the, the rejection of loans by banks to people of color. And this practice by the real estate agents, it kind of reminds me of war profiteers and the arms dealers that we discussed in mm -hmm. episode 79, death dealers, who throughout history have profited by selling arms to both sides of civil wars. 
And in many cases, not just selling the arms, but first providing the powder keg, the fuse, and the match to catalyze regional conflicts and civil wars in the first place so that they could profiteer. Well, in the same way, this blockbusting practice was not possible without the racism and the fear that white people held on to and their unwillingness to be good neighbors. And this harmed them significantly. They ended up selling their homes at extreme losses, losing money. They uprooted themselves and their families from their schools and their, the place, their places of work just to get away from their fear. And this kind of um, was part of this process in America of the explosion of gated communities. Um, in 1997, one-third of all new homes being built in the United States were found in gated communities, and something like four out of every five homes in Florida, um, over like $300,000 in value, Florida, were found in, you fucking suck. in gated communities. But, but it wasn't always like that. The pattern kind of went from, you know, beginning in the 1900s, uh, gated communities only existed for very rich people and as a way to protect these very uh, lavish family estates. And then shortly after that, uh, they were seen in planned retirement communities for middle-class Americans, this like leisure class that was retiring for the first time and then like depositing themselves in these gated communities. But then it quickly uh, then transferred to resorts and clubs and finally just middle-class suburban developments open to a lot of uh, just regular white people. And once again, this harmed everybody. And I want to read um, a review of this book called A Better Place to Live by Philip Langdon, written in 1994. And the review goes, It is no coincidence, writes Philip Langdon in his book, A Better Place to Live, that at the moment when the United States has become a predominantly suburban nation, the country has suffered a bitter harvest of individual trauma, family distress, and civic decay. Paradoxically, while many Americans are leaving the city and moving to the suburbs, it is becoming increasingly plain that the typical suburban so-called community fosters social isolation, dependence on the car, long commutes, segregation of land use, and the breakdown of public life. The chief problem, Langdon says, is not the high mobility of American society so much as the way that suburbs are designed. Most suburban neighborhoods today are separated from services, shops, and places of work, and they have no public transportation. Many of today's residential estates are designed as much for cars as for people. They are often laid out in a pod, pattern of cul-de-sacs and uh, curvilinear streets that lead into main access routes, a system which ultimately produces traffic congestion, the very thing it was designed to avoid. It also promotes isolation and atomization among residents who rarely walk anywhere, interact with neighbors, or share the same public facilities. And it goes without saying that it separates people by race, income, profession, and age. So I think this is profound because I feel like you could argue that just about all of suburban design in the United States is a product of fear. It's, it's this fear of the other. It's, it's a fear of violence that is perceived to emanate from 
diverse urban centers. And again, this this fear harms us and it, it harms everyone else. And so for, for this, I want to pull from one more article. It's a journal article written in 2001 by Seth Lowe in the American Anthropologist uh, Journal. It's called The Edge and the Center, Gated Communities and the Discourse of Urban Fe- uh, Fear. And she argues, quote, the psychological lure of defended space becomes more enticing with increased media coverage and national hysteria about urban crime. News stories chronicle daily murders, rapes, drive-by shootings, drug busts, and kidnapping. An ever-growing proportion of people fear that they will be victimized, such that the fear of crime has increased since the mid-1960s, even though there has been a decline in all violent crime since the 1980s. She goes on to write that we are inundated with media reports about the prevalence of crime and violence creating a so-called culture of fear. But when the actual crime statistics are consulted, the reality is never as grim or devastating as the newspaper and television portrayal. These false reports of crime overstate the actual threat. And why do Americans harbor so many fears? It's because, quote, immense power and money await those who tap into our moral insecurities and supply us with symbolic substitutes, end quote. So, in summary, suburban America exists because white people are afraid of each other and they're afraid of black people in particular. And this fear is even found in the logical thought progression of city planners and real estate developers designing our cities in all these terrible, exclusive ways uh, like playing, uh, you know, baby shark because we're afraid of homeless people. But in reality, it's, it's even more insidious than that. Uh, so from her paper, quote, environmental design studies also connect crime with the built environment beginning in 1961 with Jane Jacobs' recommendations for creating safer streets and neighborhoods. But it was Oscar Newman in 1972 who brought the relationship of crime and the physical environment to the attention of the public. He argues that the reason high-rise buildings are considered dangerous is that the people who live in them cannot defend their territory. So he proposes that gating city streets can promote greater safety as long as the percentage of minority residents is kept within strict limits. Timothy Crow, in 1991, a criminologist who coined the phrase crime prevention through environmental design, has instituted a widespread program that involves all local agencies, police, fire, public works, traffic, and administration, as well as planners in the formulation and review of neighborhood plans and designs implementing that defensive space concept, end quote. And I I think this is really illuminating because this desire for coordination of public services toward the service of segregation in 1991, I mean, just just fast forward to today where we have suburban development that has gone hand in hand with increased government um, surveillance and regulation through things like zoning laws that you mentioned, David, uh, reinforced through selective policing, planning practices. And all of this is usually uh, invested in by banks and businesses who are like reinforcing this system of uh, segmentation and, and the police and other services that support it. 
So all this is leading up to, in, in my mind, one, one really important takeaway, which is where is this heading for us? So climate change is really our bread and butter, right, David? It's how this podcast kind of got started. And I'm always saying like we need to do more climate change episodes because I feel like that's what drew people to this podcast in the first place. But yet we find ourselves talking about these social issues again and again. And I think it's because these things are not disconnected. And in fact, understanding the social forces, the economic forces that govern our lives, tell us more about why our our planet is deteriorating than, than some other analyses. Take Hurricane Katrina, for example. Okay. In 2005, the city of New Orleans was devastated by Hurricane Katrina, and it particularly devastated low-income neighborhoods and a majority of black renters. And in this process, 50,000 rental units were destroyed, tens of thousands of homes were destroyed, uh, which not only caused a lot of homelessness, but it caused the... um, you know, like the, the rates for rentals to skyrocket in the housing market. And there's one uh, neighborhood in particular called the St. Bernard Parish that was uh, next to the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans, which was a particularly bad place uh, that was devastated by the hurricane. And St. Bernard Parish was a 93% white town at the time. And immediately after Katrina came and devastated all this housing and like, eradicated a lot of the the places where black families lived, this parish started passing laws to maintain its so-called, quote, integrity and family atmosphere of its long-established neighborhoods. And under like one of the first laws that they came out with, owners of homes that had not been rentals prior to the hurricane were not allowed to rent to people outside of their blood relatives. Sounds pretty illegal. <laughs> Very illegal. But, you know, it's kind of like how you were talking about, like, the origin of the whole family values things was like, well, this one was just like, you can't rent to anyone who's not in your family. And as the story goes, the parish kept getting sued because they were very clearly violating fair housing laws and very obviously attempting to keep, you know, black people who had just lost their homes uh, from moving to their very white town. And each time they got in trouble, they'd come up with some new law from banning all rentals, and then they were trying to stop the construction of new properties, on and on. This went on for, for several years. And this was 2005, right? But, but look at the world we're in today. This is 2020. It's not getting any better. We've got two hurricanes in the Gulf, right, like threatening a, a large part of the United States. We have the largest wildfire epidemic that California has ever seen in its history. We have a global pandemic that has shut down the economy in large parts of the world and the, this United States country where people are out of work. Unemployment is, is massive in this country. You think people are going to be displaced? You think people are going to lose their homes? Now look at the Black Lives Matter movement. Look at how uh, you know, police brutality in this country has taken a massive turn um, towards just more overt and just like, we don't give a fuck, we're going to kill and, and murder, and we're going to get away with it. And this has sparked countrywide, global-scale uh, protests, right? 
And who are protesters? Because they're not a monolith, right? We have people of all races, all ages, all income levels, pro- professions, etc. But the media and the police kind of turn everyone who has a grievance against uh, uh, society, against the things that are taking place in this country. They're all turned into this monolithic so-called protester who then deserves to be locked up. They're causing uh, havoc. And I think there's this process going on in this country where, where the forces of power are trying to desensitize our society to public pain, which means that when the hurricanes rip neighborhoods apart, when fires destroy towns, when economic collapse turns thousands onto the streets, all these people, if, if this initiative is successful, can be sweeped under the rug and ignored as we, as collective society, turn our backs on our neighbors, our family, our friends, and ultimately ourselves, especially for those of us who live in, you know, very segmented uh, cul-de-sacs and pods of suburban uh, constructs where we don't even really know who lives behind us. You can have houses destroyed behind you and people are displaced and you don't even have any idea because we have been so atomized that we're like, uh, you know, what do you call it when you can pick, like, like if you're hunting an animal and you can like pick it off, like what is that called? Uh, Poaching? No, but it's like a, it's like a phrase where like you, it's not like taking candy from a baby, but it's kind of like that, you know, like uh, we're just, uh, we're being picked off one by one. That's what these forces of exclusion are doing to us. They're, they're setting up an environment where we can be picked off one by one as the house of cards of our society collapse and as powerful forces destabilize all our lives. Our fear of each other, of people who don't look like us, has driven us apart and maybe it created a chasm between us so deep we may not be able to reach across and find a, a, a common link with our, our friends, our families, our neighbors, which is the only way we're going to survive the incoming climate collapse. It's the only way we can survive anything in this world. Okay, well, now I can finally get back to listing out more things that are wrong now that you said yours. Um, you have three minutes, David. No, I'm, I'm just going to wrap this up. Um, you know, all of these, these policies, they've come and bite us back in the ass right now where, you know, with coronavirus and the loss of the public private spaces that we built, where we force people into living their lives, either at home or in restaurants or malls or whatever it is. And now that we can't even access that in a lot of parts of this country, where are we supposed to go? We're left with a city that is a hollow shell of what it could be. And it's because of these policies and these ideas and these these topics that we've covered today and that there is a massive long list of other things. I didn't talk about this, but we've seen a lot of these racist statues torn down a lot around the country. And many of them were built as exclusionary reminders to keep minorities on their toes and say, oh yeah, you can live here, but we're going to put a racist slave owner up in front of you. So you got to Look at that all the day. Remember your place. These things surround us at all times. And whether you realize it or not, whether you're conscious of it or not, it controls the way that you interact with your community, with your neighbors, with everything. These are roadblocks and obstacles for us to build the 
actual strong communities that are necessary if we have any sort of fighting chance at the struggles that are coming ahead. This pandemic that we currently find ourselves in, this massive wave of death here in the United States because of our hugely inadequate answer to this pandemic, something that we knew was coming, a very slow moving train barreling towards us that we just sat down and let run us over. Well, there's an even bigger train behind that, and that train is climate change, Daniel. And if we don't start trying to build resilient, inclusionary communities and then expanding those ideas to everything we do instead of this culture that we built that is the opposite of that idea, about excluding others, about getting your own and fuck everyone else, if we can't reverse all these trends, not just in our culture, but in the physical spaces that we spend our lives and the two are inextricably linked for obvious reasons, then we have absolutely no chance at weathering the challenges that are coming ahead. So you were asking earlier, you know, why don't we we do more climate change episodes? And this, in my eyes, is a climate change episode. If we can't identify in these communities, in the suburbs, in the cities, and everywhere in between, in the rural communities, the whole fucking clown country, then we have no hope. But if we can point to this and say, we shouldn't be doing that. This is a wrong thing. You know, let's actually make some change. Let's try and help people instead of forcing them out to die out of our sight. Then we can start carrying that not just at home, but around the world. And there's an old activist saying, which is think global, act local, right? You have to think about how you interact with these larger structures that surround our world that are a large part of the the entire global community. And you have to take those same ideas and put them into action where you can. You can't, for most of us, enact change on a global scale, but you can enact change in your community. You can enact change in your city. You can enact change in whatever town, village, hovel, whatever it is you live in. That's a place where you can actually make a difference. And if you work with others, you can make an even bigger difference. And you can make that difference faster. And you can spread that spirit to others in order to suddenly make those local changes global changes and we can be on the path to something better. But we have to be able to identify the things that separate us in the first place. And that's why we talk about this, Daniel. That's why we identify these broken systems that surround us. Because once we can point to them, we can say it's time to push up our sleeves and fix these. It's time to start dismantling this horribly sick culture and the physical world that is built at its core. And only then, after we've achieved all that, can we seriously start tackling the major issues that we are facing as a country and as a globe that were created because of this horrible way of living that we need to learn from in order to write this ship. And like all ships, we either go down together or we make it through the storm together. Well, only the captain is supposed to go down with the ship. Well, this ship has no lifeboats. We burned them. for, for We sold them. How close are we to shore? Uh, it's water world. There is no shore. Mm. America. America. Well, David, I guess, it, it, I guess that's a lot to think about. Yeah, it is, Daniel. But think about it. And do something about it. We hope you will. I was a little tired there at the end. I was tired the whole time. Sorry sorry for the long episode, but if you want to fact check us, if you want even more information, if you want to read some of the things that I left out, 
uh, racist curfews, uh, all sorts of, of interesting, horrible things happening in this country and around the world. Let's be honest. You can find all of that information, eventually a full transcript of this episode, all our old back catalog links to much more on our website at ashesashes.org. And as always, a lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible. And we, your hosts, will never use ads or advertising to support this show. So if you like it and would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review, recommending us to a friend, um, us giving us, uh, so like go to patreon.com slash ashesashescast. You can send us an email at ashesashes.org. Um, contact at ashesashes.org. You can also share this, uh, talk about these, these uh, projects with, <laughs> talk about these shows with your friends and family. Um, because that's what we're all about here at Ashes Ashes. You know, sparking conversations to spark, to catalyze change. Struggle, I'm struggling a little bit here, David. <laughs> You're struggling a lot. We're both struggling. Well, if you aren't struggling, if you find your speech is much better than your fingers and you talk better than you type, well, lucky for you, we've got a phone number that you can call in and leave us a voicemail that will maybe someday play on the show. If not, we very much enjoy listening to them regardless. Uh, this is an American-only number. If you're overseas, you know, whatever, record yourself and email it to us. But if you want to participate in this, you can do so at 313-99-ASHES. That's 313-992-7437. But... That's not the only way to reach us. You can find us on all your favorite social media at Ashes Ashes Cast. That's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Yes, unfortunately, we're still on there. But also now in our weekly live streaming sessions on twitch.tv slash Ashes Ashes Cast. Come hang out with us every Tuesday and Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, it's a lot of fun. We do all sorts of stuff. We, we ramble. We've got cool graphics. So we'd love to see you there. It's a great community. Speaking of communities, we have an amazing one on Reddit at Ashes Ashes Cast, but also on our Discord community. You can find an invitation link to that on our website. Go to the top, click Community Discord Invite, and you can join us with 600 of your favorite Ashes Ashes listener friends from all around the world talking about all sorts of topics. An incredible group of people. Shout out to all of you. I love you. Bless up. We will be back next 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 week, two weeks, about uh, discussing urban act. Four weeks? Three no, weeks? No, a fortnight. A fortnight, yes. Uh, we will be back in a fortnight discussing urban agriculture. We've got a great discussion already in the can for that and uh, a lot more to come. So we hope you tune in for then. Uh, maybe you can catch some uh, snippets on the live stream. Uh, but until then, we're happy to have you here and we hope that the world is treating you well and you're doing the same to those around you. This is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye-bye. Won't you call me your friend? I would call you my friend.